The message you are about to hear is produced and distributed by the Living Church of God as a free educational service. Edited reproduction is prohibited. Copyright Living Church of God, all rights reserved. And now, presiding evangelist, Roderick C. Meredith. Brethren, we are grateful for what Christ is doing in the work and certainly in the college at this particular weekend. And we're grateful for what he's doing in the lives of all of our young people. We're looking forward to some of the summer camps. The adventure camp is always very exciting. And some of the teen camps should be very fine this year. We're having three or four of them. And then the big camp up in Ohio is very, very special. So please be praying about those camps. One thing I'd like to ask you to pray about personally regarding the work as a whole, and that is the special letter we just sent out. It's just in the mail. And a lot of people out there still don't have it because it's being sent second or third class. The semi-annual letter, as you know, we sent it out to the largest group of recipients we've ever sent a letter to so far in this work, right at one-half million. On my screen, they give me in my office, it shows we now have 503,000 subscribers. But I think at the time the letter was right at half a million. So please pray God could make a difference in the work if a number of those people respond to that letter. As you know, I got stronger in that letter than any letter like that I've ever written. I talked about them being part of the work. I talked about them being on the team that Christ is using and all that kind of thing. I didn't ask for money, but I let them know that we wanted them to be involved with us in doing the work. So please pray that God will move many of them. He can move thousands of them to become donors, co-workers, or later members. If we pray about it, God hears prayer. So understand that. I hope we can pray about that. And certainly continue to be praying for Mr. Sheldon Munson. He's had this very serious surgery. He was very, very near death. They cut a great big area out of his colon. And we need to ask God to help him even now to be sure that he recuperates so he can help us so much as he's done in this whole summer program and the entire youth program. Well, brethren... The New Testament Church of God, as I think most of you here know, began about 2,000 years ago. And it was a tiny group. They sat on the day of Pentecost, or just before the day of Pentecost, I mean, there were 120 disciples. 120 were actually together at first, and they were meeting in an upper room. Some of Jesus' disciples, some were women, with meeting with them. Jesus' own mother was there. But 120 after three years of Christ's ministry, he did not try to save the whole world. God is not trying to save the whole world now, and even Jesus did not do that. But on the day of Pentecost, they did have a much bigger crowd. They started out very small, and frankly, they were very apprehensive. A lot of them were frankly scared, and they began to really need God's help and cry out for God's help. And they had a tiny group of faithful people who had gone through a whole lot. And they were tempted to go away, many of them. And Jesus knew that. He told them not to do that. Peter said, I go a-fishing. And then Christ appeared to Peter and told them, Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Turn with, if you would, to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 in your New Testament. And let's begin right reading right here some of these final events leading into the beginning of the true church of God. Matthew 27, and I want to begin reading in verse 35. 
They had all prepared all this with the background here. They whipped Christ, gave him that scourging, and then they crucified him. Verse 35, divided his garments, casting lots as it had been prophesied. And they had the accusation written over his cross. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And so he was hanging there all together on this cross, the stake, for about six hours, six hours of agony from nine o'clock in the morning till three in the afternoon. About the sixth hour until the ninth hour and the time, way they touted time, that would have been noon until, of course, three o'clock in the afternoon. There was darkness over the land. That's normally the brightest part of the day from noon until three in the afternoon, but there was darkness, supernatural darkness. The creation itself began to convulse as the creator was about to be killed. And Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They heard him cry out. They weren't converted yet. I'm sure some of them were pretty scared at that point. They'd see those men grab him and take him out of their midst the previous night as they came to get him and so on. So then some said he's calling for Elijah. They tried to give him something to drink. And one said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And then write down below verse 49, if you have a margin and check up on it. And I've done that thoroughly researched. Then another took a spear, which ought to be in here, pierced his side. And there came out water and blood. That wasn't just what happened later. That's what happened right then before he died. Jesus did not die of a grope broken heart. He died because some Roman soldier apparently had it put in his mind by God in mercy. And, of course, 3 o'clock was the normal time they started the evening sacrifices. And Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. And right then, some used to say Italian soldier may not have been Italian at all. We don't know his origin. The Romans had a conscript army. They had men from all over the world, different races and nations. Some young soldier got it in his head. Maybe Jesus was murmuring or moaning because of the pain. Oh, shut up! And jammed his spear in his side. And there burst out water and blood. And so then, of course, he did cry out, as you would too if someone rammed a great big spear. He cried out, verse 50, with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. His breath went out. He died. And behold, right then, it was a witness of the creation itself. The veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth quaked. The whole earth shook as the Creator died. The earth shook, and the rocks were opened, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after the resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. They were obviously true saints of God who had believed in Christ, at least, at that point before His full ministry began. And so they appeared and people saw them. They knew who they were. It was not Moses or someone like that. They wouldn't know who that was. So a series of miracles took place. A massive earthquake. The temple veil is split in two. And all kinds of things began to happen. When the Creator died, the creation convulsed in that way. Then a little later it shows in chapter 28, beginning in verse 16, He told them to go away to Galilee and He would meet them there. And in Matthew 28 and verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went away to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Even then you had your doubting Thomases among those very men. Then Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I have total authority, which he does, brethren. We need to realize he's coming back. He's coming back to this earth, and it's very soon. And I hope all of us can understand that. And I've been in this work now for about 65 years, including coming to Ambassador College, I guess, 66 years ago this autumn. And I've seen this event after event after event take place that Mr. Armstrong prophesied. I told you about that based on the Bible. No one else knew about it. Billy Graham knew nothing about it. Oral Roberts knew nothing about it. All these other preachers knew nothing about it. Only the true ministers of God who keep his commandments do. And Mr. Armstrong was certainly the leader at that time in every way. And so he told us that these things were going to happen. And they have been happening. Christ has all power. And he is going to come back as king of kings. And go therefore and make disciples, he told them, of all the nations. Baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things. Not some things. What did Christ do? He kept the exact Sabbath, set an example. He kept the holy days, setting us an example. He said, keep the commandments, plural, to the young man who asked him the way to eternal life. At point after point, he backed up the Old Testament as the word of God. He called it scripture again and again and again. And we are to keep God's way and God's law, the entire Bible. So we're to be teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you. Right now, you and I are sitting here in the church of God. This is a continuation of the true church of God on earth, and we're doing the work more powerfully at this particular time, no doubt, than any other group. We don't want to brag about that, but we're very grateful. And we've got to keep on, and we've got to do much better. And I hope all of you pray for that. But God says He will be with us. Christ Himself, I will be with you even to the end of the age. He will always be with us. He is our God. He is our Father. So we want to understand that and have faith in that. Now let's turn to chapter, uh, excuse me if you would, to chapter uh, uh, 1 of Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 1 at this point. And I want to begin reading here in verse 12. Acts chapter 1 and verse 12. It says that after the resurrection of Christ, he was taken up into heaven, and two men stood by in white apparel, gazing up, and they said, Jesus will come in like manner as you've seen him go. And then in verse 12, after they saw Christ rise to heaven after his resurrection, they returned to Jerusalem, which is near the Jerusalem of Sabbath day's journey, and they entered and they went up into an upper room. So here's the small group probably still very cared, scared, shaken by the events that had happened. And there were where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Eleven of them, because Judas had already fallen away and betrayed his God, betrayed his Savior. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. It's kind of interesting, brethren. They were together. They were together in an unusual way. They loved each other. They began to trust each other as they had never done before. And they were there with the women, this great big loft or wherever they were renting to stay. A number of women came with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his physical brothers. 
Even Jesus' physical brothers who did not believe in him at first began to be converted. And in those days, as Peter stood up and said they'd better choose one to take the place of, of, of Judas, who fell away. And so they did do that. It turned out to be, of course, uh, Matthias. They, they had cast lots, verse 28, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 disciples. So now they had a full complement of those who had been with Christ from the beginning. So then the day of Pentecost came, chapter 2. And they sound from heaven with a rushing mighty wind, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, God's very Spirit. The power of God came on them, and they began to speak in tongues. And the multitude were confused, wondered what was going on, and Peter showed them, of course, it wasn't wine or something like that. It was because they had God's Spirit. And so here it shows in chapter 2, and let's begin in verse 36. Let's skip over now to verse 36. Peter preached to them, and he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, a great big crowd of thousands of people. Frankly, he was taking his life in his hands to do that. He didn't know if they were going to rush on him and kill him. So he had to have courage to do that. Whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, because they'd seen some miracles and all by this time, they were cut to the heart and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said, Repent. And brethren, we had better repent, all of us, day by day. As you heard Dr. Scott's fine sermonette, we've got to realize that we just have a certain amount of time. We must not let down. We must not get lazy. We must never give up and quit. Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission, your forgiveness of your sins, and you shall is a promise. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As you know, back in 2 Timothy 1, 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That spirit can help us grow and overcome ourselves, the very nature of God. For the promise is to you, to your children, and to all who are far off, many as the Lord our God shall call. And he exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then, notice, brethren, here in verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to the church. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They didn't go after some New Testament doctrine given by someone else. And fellowship. They were in constant fellowship. As you read the early chapters of Acts, they met together again and again and again. And in the breaking of bread, they shared thousands of meals together, constantly helping each other, encouraged together as a team, as a family. And in prayers, they prayed together, as we'll see a lot of times. They would be praying together about one thing. They were filled with zeal. They weren't ashamed to do that. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done. And they who believed, verse 44, were together and had all things in common. I'm not advocating communism, and neither does the Bible. But in that unusual circumstances, these people had been scared to death. They'd seen some of their own number killed beside Christ, no doubt. They saw the terrible suffering Christ went through and how the men came out and grabbed him, a whole mob, and took him out, began to beat him and curse him and, and, and all kinds of things, torture him, and finally killed him 
They were certainly very, very apprehensive, and now they came together. They knew they had to be a family. They needed each other's encouragement. So they had all things common, and those who had more were willing to share with those who had less at that unusual time. But the attitude was family, and they sold their possessions and divided them among as anyone had need. They didn't sell them all, but they did it as anyone had need. So coming, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. See, the lots of them are eating with each other on a continual basis. They ate their food with simplicity and gladness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. As the New Testament puts it in the New King James, those who were being saved were not saved all at once. We grow in grace and in knowledge. So they were added that day 3,000 souls. God deals in threes. You had the three patriarchs, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You had David's three mighty men. You had Jesus' three major disciples, Peter, James, and John. You had 3,000 souls here throughout the Bible. You'll see that three is a very powerful number that God often used. I'm just giving a few of them. But I think most of you know that. It's interesting how these things tend to work out in that kind of a pattern. But they were together. They were eating together, praying together, worshiping, encouraging each other like a family. Notice in Mark chapter 3, if you would, Mark chapter 3 at this point, and I want to turn now to uh, verse uh, 31. Jesus had been talking to him. And in Mark 3, 31, then his brothers and his mother... Now, the Catholic Church says she's Mother Mary, mother the, the mother, the mother of God, and so on, like she was some God already. No, she was not, and is not today. Here she is, and the brethren were saying, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. He didn't jump out of his chair and rush out there and say, Oh, my carnal brothers have come, and here's Mary, the mother of God, right outside. No, that was not the case at all. And so he answered, who is my mother? He wasn't being disrespectful, but he was trying to teach them a deep, profound spiritual principle that we need to understand. Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around at a circle of those who sat about him, maybe a few dozen people there. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God. And that means you and me, brethren, to the degree that you and I have God's Spirit in us and walk with God and walk with Christ, not perfectly. No one has ever done that except Christ himself. But to the degree that we do that and have God's Spirit in us and do the will of God, we are Christ's absolute brothers. Some of you women may be like a mother. Others would be sisters. You are, he says, is my brother, my sister, and my mother. What is a mother? Part of your family. What is a brother or a sister? Part of your family. We are family in this church. And I hope we can all understand that more. And brethren, we are going to have terrible trials over the next several years. A lot of you see that building up. You see the potential in the Middle East of them killing thousands and hundreds of thousands of people who have already been killing hundreds there. And there have been whole articles coming out on that in the magazines and the supplement to the Wall Street Journal today had a major article on the persecution of Christians around the world. 
I didn't take time to read it. I just read the main thing in the paper and the Sabbath. I'll read more of it tonight or tomorrow. But more and more hundreds of thousands of Christians are having to flee the Middle East. They're not perfect Christians, but they at least believe in Christ. They're being tortured. They're being beaten up. They're being run out of town. How much more are they going to do that to us in the future if we really stand for something and show we stand for God? A lot of people in this world are going to hate us for that. We're going to have to be family more than ever. We're going to need to stand for that, to love each other, to help each other, to take each other in, to feed each other, clothe each other. This may come to that a lot more than we have now. I know we haven't been doing that as much as we should. I know that we don't have the same need now that we're going to have. But I want to focus our mind on that because the Bible is very important describing that attitude that they had in the New Testament church and the attitude we ought to have. There was a lot more of that in the early church back in the late 1940s and 1950s when Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong were the leaders. There was no other competition and we were together. It was all new truth. People were more excited. I'll tell you more stories about that later. But there was a great deal of family there, people helping others, helping others. We literally had hundreds of people. I'm not exaggerating. I know Mrs. Party and perhaps some of you older brethren the Davises may remember that in the late 40s and early 50s and all even the late 50s and early 60s, altogether we had hundreds, plural, of people moving to Pasadena from the South and the Midwest. They wanted their kid in imperial school. They wanted their kid in Ambassador College. They wanted their job at the press or the TV studio or whatever. We had these different places that were hiring. They heard that. They came pouring out to where instead of having about 50 or 60 people in the church at headquarters, which is when I had, when I came, that's all we had. At one point, we had about 3,000 people meeting right on the campus. Some of you know that. 3,000 people meeting every Sabbath on the campus. We had about 1,000 or 1,200 in the house of God in the afternoon. The same in the morning. Then we had the Imperial Church over at Imperial School. Then we had AM and PM over there. Then we had the Spanish Church, we called it, meeting up in the recital hall in addition. For the Spanish people that couldn't speak too much English, we helped them in that way. Some of our Spanish people met with the regular church, of course. There's no segregation, but we could help some of them better if they had their own church. So they had two or three hundred meeting up in the recital hall. And I've added it up a number of times. I was over the headquarters church to an extent, over the local visiting program as well as the church in general. And we had about 3,000 people there. That's because these hundreds of people came out. And the older brethren had to help them, often took them into their home, helped them get a job, fed them and fed their kids and helped took their kids to imperial school. All that kind of thing went on for years, taking care of one another. The truth was new. It was exciting. And people had that spirit of zeal and a spirit of family. And I think as we've gotten bigger, we've lost some of that. I think you know that. We're not against it. We're not being bad. We just don't think of the need anymore. But I hope we can begin to get that attitude again and realize that as things get really tough, once again, we're going to have to help one another. God wants us to help one another and feel a deep sense of family, maybe more than we've ever done before. And I hope we can pray that I can help you to recapture some of that spirit because we certainly do need it. 
Turn to 1 John 3 now, if you would. 1 John, back near the end of your New Testament. Turn to uh, 1 John chapter 3. And here it says in verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Children? What are children? They're part of the family. So once again, we're talking about family, aren't we? We are children of God. We're only begotten children. We know that. But we are nevertheless regarded as God's children even now. And God looks at it that way. Children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now, right now, we're children of God. But it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him for we shall see him as he is. Yes, when Christ comes back, it will be the resurrection from the dead. We will be created as being God being. We will be born of the Spirit, become Spirit. And so we will be entirely different relationship. We shall be like him. We can look right in the face of God, right in the face of the Son, so to speak, the full glory of God, because we will be a full member of what? The family. Full member of God's family, God's real sons, not some lesser being like grasshoppers or dogs, but full sons of the great creator who put the sun and the moon up in the sky. I know we know that, but think about the reality of that. Does it God say what he means and means what he says? Well, he does. We shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope, what a wonderful hope that is, purifies himself. We're not trying to stay away from sex, wrong use of sex, or drinking too much because we want to be nicey-nice. We want to live forever. We want to live the kind of life that will qualify us in God's eyes to be able to live forever by Christ living his life in us so God can trust us under any and all conditions forever. If we have this hope in ourselves, then we will purify ourselves we will want to do that just as Christ is pure. That's the ultimate hope. Whoever commits sin, and all the way through this, if you check the Greek, brethren, some of you can look it up in the interlinears of the commentaries. Some of them explain his present progressive tense here. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is the transgression of the law or lawlessness. But whoever commits sin... Again, it's progressive. It means whoever practices sin. That would be the specific, spelled out, detailed meaning of this. Whoever practices sin, not sin, I sin, you sin, all of us sin every day. But whoever practices sin, of course we all sin once in a while, and that's not good, but we'll make big little mistakes, hopefully not too many big mistakes. But whoever practices sin, practices lawlessness. And you know that he is manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him, if we walk with God, if we have Christ living his life in us through this Holy Spirit that we're promised, we abide in Christ, does not sin. What? That means I do not sin. No, I do sin. You sin. We think bad thoughts. We have vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed. That's sin. So again, it's continuous sense, continuous present. It's happening. Whoever practices sin, whoever practices sin has neither seen him nor known him. 
So you know them if you have sin and repent. But if you practice sin, then it shows God's Spirit has never been in you. You do not have God's Spirit if you practice sin. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who, and here it is correctly translated in the New King James in this verse, he who practices righteousness, see, it's a normal, regular way of life. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. You practice righteousness as a way of life. For he who sins, or again regularly sins, practices sin, is of the devil. Do you sin? Are you of the devil? Well, I hope most of you are not. Because you do sin, but you don't practice sin, if you follow what I mean. That's why this other translation is definitely, the, the technical Greek experts know that. He who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has not has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifest, that it might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been, here it is, the Greek word ganao, it can be translated either born or begotten. Check me on this. Look up these things carefully so you can explain it. Understand it, brethren. The same Greek word is translated born or begotten. All the Greek experts acknowledge that. It depends entirely on the way they want to translate it, which means upon the context, as they understand the big picture context of what it's talking about. We know that in most cases it means begotten, as it does here. So whoever has been begotten, or not yet born, but begotten of God, does not practice sin. Get this. If you have God's Holy Spirit in you, you do not practice sin. You may make a mistake, but you do not practice sin. So whoever is begotten of God does not practice sin for his seed. And we've explained this many times. God is not embarrassed about sex. The very word sperm is used here in the Greek. Sperma. S-P-E-R-M-A. God's very nature, as the very nature of a father goes into the wife in the sperm and impregnates the ovum, and then the very nature and sometimes some of the characteristics of the father, the appearance of the father unite with the mother's nature and characteristics, that produces a little baby. That's not embarrassing to God. should not be embarrassing to you. The very nature of God, the sperm, comes into us from God. So it shows this very clearly for his seed. God's very seed remains in us, in him, in him who's begotten of God. God's very nature. And he cannot sin or cannot practice sin because he has been begotten again of God. In this, notice what it's talking about when you look at the context carefully. Verse 10 helps us understand. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Who's he talking about? Those who are already in heaven or born again or spirit? No. He's talking about obviously people here and now on this earth in this. In other words, in this example, the children of God and the children of the devil, those other human beings who greatly outnumber us, obviously, are manifest. It, it makes it clear who is what. Whoever does not practice, and here it is again, they spell it out in this verse, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. You've got to practice righteousness. You must not practice sin. You may sin and make a mistake. You'll quickly repent, but you will not practice it. You will not live that way as a way of life. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. 
So God is very important about that. It's got to be a regular way of life. For this is the message that we should love one another. Very important to God that human beings learn to love one another. We're all made in the image of God. Do not marvel, brethren. Verse 13, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. And uh, it says in verse 15, whoever hates his brethren is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Does everyone have an immortal soul? No, this disproves that. A murderer does not have an immortal soul. Nobody has an immortal soul. By this we know love, verse 16. Get down to verse 16. Because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. God wants us to have a spirit of family. He wants us to lay down our lives for everybody, but especially for the brethren. Whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need, a brother in the church has just moved to Pasadena. His children are going hungry. He has to live in his trailer house, maybe not a big, comfortable, mobile home. What's he going to do? What did he do? The brethren took him in. That happened again and again. What happened in the early days of God's church? That happened over and over again. They shared their food. They shared their homes. They shared their love and encouragement, their fellowship, their money, yes. All kinds of things with one another during that trial when they were getting going. Whoever has this world's good that sees his brother in need, it shuts up his heart. How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word. Oh, I love you. Go in peace, be warmed and filled. But don't, don't give him anything. You don't do anything. Let us not love in tongue, but in word, true deed and in truth. So we are to have that spirit of actually doing something about it to help one another. And we ought to try to do that every way we possibly can. And I hope all of you and your brethren out in the churches around the world will understand that. Some of your brethren in Australia realize the terrible situation of some of our brethren recently in Vanuatu where everything was wiped out. Realize some of the things from the terrible flooding down there and the other things. Our brethren in in the Philippines, some of you realize how entire parts of villages where you live have been wiped out and brethren had to be helped over and over by other brethren. Plus some money we sent down on Australia dead and others. We need one another. And as these terrible trials come upon us, just before the great tribulation, they're going to get much, much worse. We're going to really need a family. We're going to have to understand that we are family. God wants us to act like a real family. I've told you this before, but I can always remember my father, who was a very tough guy in a sense. He was very nice, but he, very masculine, very seldom showed a lot of emotion. He was taught that by his father, my grandfather Meredith, and their grandfather, who was a U.S. Marshal in northeast Oklahoma when it was still Indian territory. And the Indians taught my dad to ride bareback on horses and to slap the head of, of, of rattlesnakes off. He'd grab them and flip their head right off. He tried to teach me that. My mother stopped him. She said, you'll, you'll cause Roderick to get killed. She was afraid I wouldn't know how to do it right. So she didn't let him teach me that. My dad kept a loaded pistol under his bed for a long time. Finally, when I got to be a teenager and started coming in late, my mother talked him out of it. She told me that. She says, Carl, you're going to shoot Roderick when you'll come in late sometime. You'll think it's an intruder. So she made him get rid of that pistol. But he grew up in Indian territory. He had that attitude. 
But when my mother had her terrible heart attack and nearly died back in 1951, Raymond McNair and I were on a baptizing tour and we heard about it some way. They got us from Pasadena and we circled back around and postponed a couple of visits so we could see my mother in the hospital. And there she was in terrible condition, no doubt hundreds and hundreds of dollars of bills. Today it would be thousands of dollars of bills because the prices have gone up so much today. No health plans back then, by the way. And a few days later, I was still there, I think just a couple of days later, because she'd already had this when we found out it came there. I was sitting at our table, our family dining table. And my dad, which was very unusual for him, had tears in his eyes. He was showing us these letters. Letters from Aunt Kay, letters from Aunt Gladys, letters from Aunt Helen, letters from Aunt Dorothy, all of Mother's seven sisters, plus her one brother named John, all sent money. Hundreds of dollars began to pour in. And he didn't have that money to pay the bills. Family. Family. They, they, they took care of it. That's what family's for. And we need that, brethren, more than we, more than we realize. We're going to need it a lot more in the near future, so I hope you can understand that. I'm not a very tough guy anymore. <laughs> I have, I have emotion too much ever since my, my stroke. They say people after a stroke sometimes have weaker emotions, so I'm getting that way. But anyway, it really hit me at the time even to see my dad have tears come to his eyes when those checks begin to come from the family to take care of things. He knew he couldn't do that. He didn't ask for anything. They just all begin to pour in because of family. Anyway, we're to have that attitude. I better shut up here. <laughs> My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. By this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Well, I'm going to pick up some of this later, but let's go on. Now let's go, if you would, to uh, Romans and I want to make one comment here, too, about this, where God's very nature, the sperma, has been put in us. Therefore, we are the children of God. We have the very sperm of God, so to speak. We have the very nature of God put in us, just as surely as some of your fathers, your nature, part of your very character, some of your personal qualities show right up in your own sons and daughters. It's stamped right there. Some of that comes right out from God into us. And so these are the people in the church. We ought to love them all. Some of you may not be converted. I know that. I'm reasonably perceptive about those things through the many years, and I used to have to help others understand it. And in Pasadena, we had many people that were there that were not converted. And I tell some people that on occasion, that I, and they say, Oh, really? How do you know that? Well, you just see it by the fruits. I better not get into examples here. I tend to talk too much, but I can see that. But whether they're fully converted or not, they're here, and we want to assume they're converted until proven otherwise, just like our American court system. We're presumed innocent unless proven otherwise. So love them. Most of them are converted if they're in the church and baptized, and they have what? Family. They have, as you have, the stamped impress of God put right in them. The very nature that comes right out from our common Father, the Holy Spirit, the sperm, the life of God, the same Father. I have the same Father, and you have the same Father, and you all over on this side, we all have the same Father coming right out from God in heaven. 
if we are converted to the degree we have God's spirit. So we want to think that way and understand that. And in that spirit, it's much easier to realize that we are brothers and sincerely want to help each other more than perhaps we would normally do. Let's turn now, brethren, to Romans, uh, the book of Romans chapter 3. Turn to Romans chapter 3. And verse 28, we all know that Jesus was a Jew, and we are spiritual Jews if we're converted. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, not just a normal carnal Jew, nor is he that is circumcised, uh, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. That spirit from God which is inside you, that's what makes you a spiritual Jew. And circumcision, the cleansing of your whole attitude, is of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not from men but from God. So we're all spiritual Jews to the degree we have God's Holy Spirit in us. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Remember Romans 3 and Galatians 3. Easy to remember the last three few verses of each of these chapters. Paul writes here in Galatians chapter 3. And let's begin in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Put on Christ? What do you mean? You have Christ coming right onto you, into you, living his life. You have put on Christ. Christ is in charge of your life. You have the same spirit in you. You have the same nature in you that Christ had. He started out that way. He never made mistakes. He had it in you more powerfully, or he had it in him more powerfully. But you have it, the same nature. You are family. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So all of us are part of the family of Abraham spiritually. We're all spiritual Jews. We're all spiritually circumcised, spiritually. We're differences in the flesh, obviously, or we would all use the same toilet facilities like the modern uh, liberals want us to do, but we think that's not God's way, and most of you understand that. But still, in all spiritual things, the physical becomes less important. The spiritual becomes more important. There's neither Jew nor Greek, anybody. We're all one in Christ Jesus. We have the same Father we are family, and we want to really deeply feel that way and express that in our entire lives, perhaps more than we have, to get that thought in our minds. As the terrible tribulation begins, and some of us are beaten up or hauled into jail, some of them have to lose their job in order to obey God, we may have to help those people out, not just here in Charlotte, but your brethren back in Dallas, your people in Houston, Kansas City, Los Angeles, Sydney, Melbourne, out in Johannesburg, around the world. We are family and have got to help one another. Many of us recently sent money down to help the people in Vanuatu. We may have sent money elsewhere in specific needs. We want to have that attitude. All right, let's turn now, if you would, to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, brethren. And here, beginning in verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to Herod, some of the church. So here's the church. They called it the church. There was the church of God. They call it the church of God 12 different times. Then he killed James, this dictator, 
Herod. He killed James, the brother of John. He was the original James who was killed. And later Jesus' brother was converted and comes along. Stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. He killed James. And he, because he saw it pleased Peter or the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. So he grabbed Peter. He thought I'd make a big point here by grabbing Peter, who was their leader. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. God throws that in there because, of course, the church was keeping that time. That's why this is mentioned. No other reason to say so. So when he had apprehended Peter, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. He thought that might be a more appropriate time, his carnal dictator. So Peter was put in prison. Notice the attitude. Peter was therefore kept in prison and constant prayer. Did the church all go about their normal business and just act like nothing had happened? No. Constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. I think many of us had a great deal of prayer, hopefully several times a day over the last few days for Sheldon Munson because he was very, very near death. And God saw him through this thus far. He still needs our prayers. But we ought not just pray once and go on. We ought to pray off and on throughout the whole day. And back then they may have had like some of the Protestants do. So let's not say the Protestants do it, so don't do it. They must have had living together. They may have had prayer sessions where there's someone praying at all times for people like that. That wouldn't be wrong at all. If there's an emergency and people are going to be executed or killed or hanged the next morning or had their head chopped off the next morning, pray for them. They're our family. Those things are going to come. I know they're not going to come tomorrow. I'm talking about five or ten years from now. But they're building up right now. If you read the papers, you know this kind of attitude is building throughout the Middle East. It's beginning to spread. These ISIS terrorists are already planning to strike. We know in Minneapolis they've talked about that, striking the Mall of Americas and other places like that. We don't know which day they're going to strike South Park Mall or strike some of us right here. We don't know that. Maybe a few more years. I don't know. But those things are going to spread. As America turns away from God, as America proves same-sex marriage, as more and more millions of young people live together without benefit of marriage, as more rotten young men start to curse and damn God in God's name all day long, as people make fun of God in our television programs, on the Internet, rotten, foul things coming out, and put down religion, God will say at some point, I've had enough. And he will pull the plug and all kinds of things will begin to happen big time. So let's understand we're going to need God's help and we'll need the help and prayers of one another. So they were praying continually that God would have mercy on Peter. Constant prayer was offered by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out while Peter was sleeping between two soldiers and an angel came and struck him on the side. So angels intervened back then. That may happen for us later too. A number of you have experienced things. I know I have. At least my wife has a couple times. My first wife and second wife both had that where they knew it had to be an angel doing certain things. And Mr. Armstrong has told us some stories. He never told these stories in Ambassador College to get anyone converted. After you knew the Armstrongs for years, sometimes you'd hear that something like that happened. And I know that Mrs. Armstrong told me personally more than once, and I think one or two of the other people did in the family, how... When they were so poor 
and having to do without food and crying out to God continually while their older daughter Beverly was sleeping on this little daybed just below a great big heavy frame picture and a noise came to Mrs. Armstrong where she was sleeping on a daybed or slumbering in a, in a cot, whatever it was, right across, moved Beverly. Well, she wasn't used to that. She didn't try to know, say, oh, that's got to, she just thought, well, that's my mind playing tricks on me. And then it got louder, move Beverly. Then she kind of sat up and wondered, and suddenly this voice came, she said, with feeling, Mrs. Herbert Armstrong, move Beverly! Shook her, shook the room. She moved Beverly. Immediately this great big painting came right down where Beverly's head was. Beverly was a little baby, about six months or a year old. God intervened and had an angel speak to her. Those things have happened in our time, brethren, and they are going to happen again. We need to be aware of the spirit world. There is a spirit world around us. There are angels and there are demons. And we want to understand that and believe it. We don't want to worship the demons. We just need to be aware that they are there and worship God and get close to the real God so we have the real power from God. But an angel came and struck him on the side. His chains fell off supernaturally. And the angel said, Gird yourself, follow me. He thought he was seeing a vision. And then they got outside the prison and they went on down one street. They got outside and down a street. What happened? The angel disappeared. Mr. Armstrong used to say, God will do for us what we cannot do if we trust him. But we have to do for ourselves what we can do. So Angel didn't say, bye, I'll see you later. I'm going off and <laughs> he just disappeared. But then Peter realized what it was. And verse 11, when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel. Yes, there are angels of God who will help you and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. What's this, a prayer meeting? Is that Protestant? No, that's Church of God. So it's not wrong for us to have a prayer meeting once in a while to have several people there. I don't mean a regular prayer meeting apart from the ministry and start another church. I'm just saying there can be brethren gathered together in fear or concern and two or three families or so meet together on occasion if there's some real need or maybe there will be a minister or elder there if it gets into kind of a teaching service. But many were gathered together praying. Maybe five, ten, maybe been twenty or forty of them. We don't know. They were gathered together praying for Peter. Spare his life, O oh God. And then Peter had been left out. They didn't know that. He knocked on the door and this little girl goes, Peter's there, Peter's there. And notice what they said. They thought it can't be him. And then when she kept insisting, they said, verse 15, it is his angel. So they knew about angels. They thought, well, this little girl has really seen something. It may be his angel. Now Peter continued knocking. And when they'd opened the door, they saw him and were astonished. And motioned to them with his hand to keep silent. He declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James. James had just had his head cut off. This was the other James. This from now on, this is the introduction of James, the Lord's brother. Jesus' physical brother was converted by now. Then he became the leading elder at Jerusalem, as you read in Acts chapter 15 in the big conference. Tell James. Because Peter then was probably beginning at that point, no doubt, to get ready to start going all over the Roman Empire, going all over to the various Jewish settlements as Paul went out to the Gentiles 
and the one staying right at headquarters was Peter, was James, I mean. So anyway, go tell James. So they had a very enthusiastic, heartfelt gathering of the saints, and they were praying together, and there was a sense of real togetherness at that time. So we will have to learn to cry out in the same way. Let's turn back to Acts chapter 2 now. Turn back again to Acts chapter 2, brethren, and beginning here in verse 29. Here, after they had threatened Peter and the apostles, then Peter and the others got together, the brethren in the church, Acts 2.29. I'm sorry, it's Acts 4.29, Acts 4.29. I'm reading my notes wrong. How could I do that except my notes are no good? (laughs) Now, Lord, look on your threats their threats and grant to your service that with all boldness they speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders. So they all prayed together. One was probably leading, but again they were praying together that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant. The King James has child. That's a mistranslation. You look in the New King James, the commentary, somehow the Protestants want to have a little Lord Jesus. They put a lot of things in there that don't belong in there. Christ has never called a babe or a child after he did become an adult. He is your servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. God heard and literally shook the whole building. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Notice verse 32. Now, here it is again, this attitude, this family. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, completely together, were together, were family. We love each other. We share everything. Nor did anyone think that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. They shared these things together. And, of course, they had great power and they, no one lacked, it says, verse 34, for those who even had houses sold them and distributed and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. They didn't automatically divide up everybody's property like communism, but they would help those who were in need. And Joseph, named Bar- Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus. So here's the introduction of Barnabas having land, sold it. So he's willing to sell his property and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. They had such awesome respect for the ministry back there and what Christ was doing as the living head of the church. They were willing to share and willing to work together in a remarkable way. I'm not saying that all of you ought to do that now. I'm just saying the time is coming when you see that God is working through this work, He's working through the ministry here, I may not be here. I'm not asking you to do it for me. I'm just saying we need to build that attitude. Trust in God. Trust in the living Jesus Christ that's here to take care of and lead His church. I know my daughter Elizabeth was here. I think I said this in front of here. I don't know if John may have heard me say that. My son John's here. But my older children heard me say that way back when they were little kids when we were living on South Orange Grove, and they were 8, 10, 12, 14 years old, Mr. Armstrong was the leader. And I knew that he was a man of God. He was not perfect. I could tell you about a lot of his faults. I saw them. He was human. But I don't mean great big spiritual sins. I just mean human faults. But I knew he was God's true servant. And I told my wife, Margie, and I told my children several times, I say, if that man says it's time to go, 
I meant to flee to a place of safety. We're going to go. We might be afraid we'd come back with egg on our face if it doesn't happen, but I'd rather know that Christ is the head of the church and do what that man says than to be dead because I did not trust in the leadership of the church. So each one of you has to figure it out. There is a real God. There is a real Jesus Christ who is called the living head of the church. He's there. Angels are there. A spirit world surrounds us. These things are going to get much worse. There will be times when I or Mr. Ames or later on perhaps Mr. Weston, whoever is in charge as a human servant, I trust that Christ will guide those people at that time if they keep on the basic way of God, which they have been for decades in each case. Because they're servants of the living God. And Christ is alive. And these things are very, very real. And they're going to happen. We'll have to help one another. We'll have to have a certain trust that God is in charge. Telling us what to do even individually at times. So they had a great deal of togetherness back then. And their willingness to trust God and do what God says. A spirit of family. Helping each other. Taking care of each other. Back when I first came to church. In 1949, the very next summer, why a guy named Owen Smith, who later dropped away, but was a very nice young man from Oklahoma, my father's state, and Ken Herman, some of you know, was the later registrar of Ambassador College. We drove up to Oregon to work in the woods in Ken Herman's old 39 Chevrolet. So this was 11 years later, so it was an old car about to fall apart. And Mr. Armstrong told us that summer, he said, you guys may want to send the Jefferson Church of God, the Scrabble Hill Church at Jefferson. He said, they're, you know, the Seventh-day Church of God. But he said, they won't bother you. He said, you might worry them. And he kind of chuckled, and I didn't know what he meant until we came in there. And here are these three young men. We all had our suits on, a very inexpensive suit. I think I had a 38.95 suit, and I bought a pennies and a sale or something. We all had orders, but, we, you know, we had something and the Sardis people tended to be more hickey and backwoods and didn't even wear as good clothes or wore as sharp. We came in and that local preacher is about to have a hissy fit. He thought Armstrong's men have arrived to take over. You could tell he was scared. He was bustling around watching us. After a few weeks, they didn't do that. They saw we were three young kids. We were there to worship. But he told us to serve right there. But we had to live. No one, we had no place to live. We had virtually no money. So where did we live? We lived with church brethren. Mr. and Mrs. David Henyon. Some of you have known David Henyon Jr. He's, he's the grandson of the original one who was a member of the board of the Radio Church of God. Mrs. Henyon was old enough to be my grandmother, but she took us in. She treated us just like her own sons. She didn't have a nice electric stove or a gas stove. She had an old wood stove. She had to put the, the wood in there and get it going, and then she cooked wonderful meals on that stove. She'd get up at 5 a.m., cook us breakfast, send us off when we were had part-time jobs, and later we got a chance to work in the woods. But we came in there and stayed with the Henyons on weekends. We got one or two showers a week. We had this in a wash tub the rest of the time in the middle of the week, very cold water coming out of the spring. But the Henyons let us stay there. She cooked for us, washed our clothes, took care of us like our own mother. Why? Because we were brethren. Brethren. We were in God's family. We were in God's church. I've had so many women help me in that way. I can't even name them all in the sense of taking all the time here today. I've told you in the past about Mrs. Roy Hammer. 
Some of you have heard of the Hammers who gave us the original property for Ambassador College and Big Sandy. And Mrs. Hammer was an absolute pillar in the church. When Raymond Montanera and I came through in 51 and Burke and I in 52, she insisted on having us stay with them. Or one time we stayed in a motel, but she insisted on us coming to eat with them. And then she grabbed our clothes. I, I, and I just said, well, we don't need that. I was embarrassed. She said, don't worry. I'm a, I have five boys. I know how boys are. You boys need to have your clothes properly washed, don't you? So I looked at it. I thought, well, sounds like a good idea. We've been quickie washing them in the sink in the motel. So she washed our clothes, fed us, took care of us, and we stayed there in Big Sandy one or two nights. Then we went on, filled and taken care of by Mrs. Hammer. Then she was the one who was the pillar in the setting up the whole Feast of Tabernacles. She was the one people would call from hundreds of miles away when everyone had to come to that one place. East Texas, what's there? Nothing. No good motels, hotels, restaurants, but she arranged things. She told people where to go, what to do, and helped arrange things. And her husband was out doing all the work and fixing up the old tabernacle and getting the grounds ready. They did absolutely yeoman's work, very hard work, over and over again. What was her salary? Zero. I checked up on that, zero. She just wanted to help the brethren. And she fed them, clothed them as she could, helped fed and clothed us. Many other women over the years have helped me like that as mothers in the church. And Mrs. Hammer, Mr. Hammer was wonderful in going away above and beyond and helping and building and serving. And Mr. Hinion and many others like that. But the women were more outstanding in being like mothers to us young men. I will never forget it. We had the feeling this was family. This was family. And like Jesus said there in Mark chapter 3, you are my family. You are my brothers and sisters and father and mother. That's what they are. That's what we need to be to one another. Mrs. Hammer was my mother. Mrs. Hinion was my mother. Mrs. Close Shippard up in Oregon during my first ministry, I've told you that, was my mother. She saw that I was working and traveling around and visiting and raising up this church up in Seattle. And she said, I don't think you probably know how to clean your apartment. She didn't know. She was just guessing because she had boys too. She said, let me come in with business. She had another woman. And she said, we'll bring a, a, a good vacuum cleaner. And I said, oh, I don't need that. The second time she asked me, I still said that. But the next day or two, she came anyway. <laughs> and she came in. She had all her equipment. This other woman, she cleaned that place. And once she got to say, well, things really do look different. <laughs> I hadn't been cleaning it the right way. And she took care of me. What was the charge? Nothing. I was a brother in the church of God. So anyway, let's have that attitude toward one another. I always remember the Norvell Piles, no relation to Mr. Wayne Pyle, but their name was spelled the same. And they had two or three sons and two daughters, Natalie and Norvalee. I dated both Natalie and Norvalee before I was married. You dated all the girls back in those times, even though I was a young teacher. And Natalie married Tony Hammer, and Norvalee married uh, Mr. Ron Kelly, some of you may remember, who later became an evangelist. And they were very nice young girls. But the, the Piles were very generous, and they had these two daughters and some sons. They had a big family, so they knew how to be family. And they would have a regular system where brethren would have a potluck and bring their own food after church nearly every single Saturday night. You didn't go home alone. If you wanted some company, you came by the Piles' house. They had an old house, but it was a big house because they had four or five children. 
and they had several rooms you could eat in and they made themselves very available, made everyone very, very welcome. So we'd come by there and have lots of, you know, 12 to 25 people there to visit the fellowship. Every, every Sabbath after church, you didn't have to spend a lot of money. Most of us didn't have a lot of money. I remember Mrs. Apart, Mrs. Apart, don't want to embarrass her, but she was doing, uh, cutting our hair. I think you may remember some of us didn't have enough money to even go to the barber, to the, uh, barber college. So she would cut our hair. We had to do with what we had to do with. And we were family. We can learn to do that here, brethren, as things get tough. And as you have opportunity, new people move into this area, take care of them, help them get a job, feed them, clothe them, do something, be family. God will bless you if you do that. Almighty God is looking down. And as we get toward the end, we're going to have to learn to be that way a lot more than we may have been in the past. And I hope we can really understand that. Turn at this point, if you would, to Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25, brethren. And here, you remember this, Jesus' own command. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, a magnificent procession of great powerful spirit beings, and every island and mountain is going to have been shaken out of its place, and trumpets are sounding from heaven, and Christ is coming back in magnificent glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats, and then he'll say, Come on my right hand, be blessed, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 35, Why are you so blessed? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, a new member, someone that moved into the air and you didn't know me yet. You took me in. I was naked, didn't have much clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison. Will some of us be in prison? Yes, we probably will. That's what happened to the early church. That's what's happening to people all over the Middle East right now. Then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or naked? All these things. When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer, verse 40, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, my brothers, Christ is our brother. We are family. God has made us begotten members of his church and begotten members of his own family. We love each other as family. We have a common father, and to the degree that I can see God's Holy Spirit and different ones of you, I know that you are begotten children, begotten sons, and begotten daughters of God, and you have the very seed, the very seed of God in you, and therefore to the degree you walk with God, you reflect that, and you are my family. So we got to understand that concept and really stick by it and act on it. And as much as you did it, one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So if you do it to anyone who are his brothers, you do it to Christ himself and he will bless you. As the next verse is going to show, if you don't do it, then you're cursed. And that is very, very bad. God wants you to do the right thing. He wants you to do it. He encourages you to do it. So again, turn to 1 John 3, if you would, brethren. Once again, turn to 1 John, 
near the end of your New Testament here, 1 John chapter 3. And I want to begin reading here, verse 16. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. God tells us all to do that. For whoever has this world's goods that sees his brother in need, does your brother sometimes come to you in need or you see him in need? He shouldn't have to come to you. Watch for it. Be alert to that too. How can you help? How can you serve? And shut up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? Chloe Shipper didn't wait to have me come to her. She saw I was an ignorant young man and probably didn't know how to do much. So she just took care of me anyway, cleaned my house. Mrs. Henyon didn't ask us. She just knew by the where we came that we didn't have anything. She came but took us in and cooked for us. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Take action. And I might say this, by the way. Some of us who are much older, I'll be 85 in a few weeks, and we have a number of older people here, Mr. and Mrs. McNaughton and Mrs. Uh, uh, careful what I call her, Mrs. Murray, <laughs> and, and other older people I've known by their other names, who are ser- serving God for decades and been helpful in the past. We can't all be out feeding you or clothing you physically, but we can be like Epaphras, as it says in, in Colossians chapter 4. Epaphras loved the brethren. He worked mightily for them. He strove mightily for them in prayer. And we've got to help you the best we can as I can in preaching and teaching and writing and pray for you and sometimes pray for you again and again if something goes bad. I'm sorry I can't cook if I try to. I can't even cook for myself. I may fall on the stove and get a horrible burn. You understand that. But we did try to do that when we were younger, and I hope most of you know that. My wife and I have had hundreds of people to our home over the years. I mean hundreds, plural. But we want to have the attitude and we want to help in the way we can, even if it means praying fervently and fasting and praying and crying out. But those of you who can, do this. We know that we are of the truth that shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, if you're really acting on these things, we have confidence toward God. That gives you certain confidence. You know that you're really trying and doing this part of what is called Christianity. You're being a real brother or sister to others in the church. Then you have confidence. And whatever we ask, because that confidence then becomes faith. And whatever we ask, once we build that attitude, we receive from him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. We treat each other as genuine brothers and sisters. We talk about family. We do it. We practice this. We become givers rather than getters. We lay down our lives for our brethren. We do it. It gives us extra faith, and our prayers will be heard more often and more powerfully. God certainly indicates this. Doing these things gives us that confidence, helps us build faith. So then whatever we ask, we receive from him. God hears our prayers because we keep his commandments and do all these other things to help, to give, to serve, to pray for God's work, to pray for the coming semi-annual letter that's just now arriving, all those things. We do those things that are pleasing in His sight. We cry out to God day and night. 
and ask God to use us as his church, as his begotten family, because we are family, and God wants to learn this lesson of family because he wants to be us. He wants you and me to be part of his family, part of his family forever.